Morning. So this morning we begin a 10-week series of sermons on vision. Now, as most of you know, ECC has been on what is called the Vitality Pathway for almost two and a half years. We began in March of 2017. And for those that don't know or can't remember, Vitality Pathway is a name that our denomination gives to a network of resources and relationships and processes to help local congregations become more healthy and missional. And when we say healthy, what we mean is we are pursuing Christ, intimacy with Christ, worship, following Christ. And when we say missional, we mean that we are pursuing Christ's priorities in the world. And by way of a, of a brief summary uh, through the Vitality Pathway, we have, as a church, been invited to take part in three churchwide workshops. We have launched teams around five basic objectives from that workshop and, in fact, accomplished all five of those objectives. We have taken part in a uh, service of consecration in February of 2018, and we have taken part in a churchwide pulse survey in the spring of that year, and out of that we launched the ministry planning team. The ministry planning team is led by Ron Smith, and we've been meeting for just under a year. We've tried to keep you updated through an an e-letter article and uh, time in the pulpit as well as in congregational meetings. What we're going to talk about over the next couple of months comes directly out of uh, the result and the the prayer and the process of coming together as the ministry planning team. It is drawn from what we see God is already doing in ECC and how that overlaps with the passions and the calling and the gifts of the pastoral team and the leadership of ECC and where we continue to discern that God is at work in these things. Through the Vitality Pathway, and we took the Pulse survey that I mentioned, we were identified, ECC was identified as a stable church, and I know that sounds like a good thing, but in this context it's not. A stable church is a church that's comfortable, that has most of its needs met, and maybe doesn't take the risks that it ought to take. So we are a stable church, and for a stable church to be able to move toward the healthy missional option down here on the bottom left, what is needed is an incremental change in programming, but a monumental change of heart. An incremental change in programming, but a monumental change of heart. Now, it's not to say that major changes in programming might not be coming along. They might. It is to say we don't start there. We start with a change of heart, corporately as a congregation and individually. This is about change in culture, which in many ways is probably the most difficult type of change we can encounter. And so with all of that, I want to introduce you to what we are calling our ECC Touchstones. There are three definitions of a touchstone. All of them speak to our choice to use this word. From its origin, a touchstone was a black flint-like stone formerly used to test the purity of gold or silver or other precious metals by the streak that was left on the stone when when it was rubbed by the metal. Another related definition is a test or criterion for determining the quality or the genuineness of a thing. And finally, not the least of these definitions for our purposes, a touchstone is um, a fundamental or quintessential part or feature of something. It's a fundamental or quintessential part or feature of something. The three touchstones by which we want to measure our mission and vision here at ECC are welcome, transformation, and presence. Welcome, transformation, and presence. And so by welcome, we mean that we are a place of hospitality, grace, and community for all people. By transformation, we mean that we provide resources and relationships for the journey from curiosity about Christ to Christiformity. And by presence, we mean that we are sent into the world 
as agents of change and redemption. We begin with presence and work our way backward to welcome. Starting with presence gives us a picture of where we are headed, a vision of the mission on which God has sent us. With each of these touchstones, our intent is to look at them biblically from the Old Testament, what we can find there, from the Gospels and the life and teaching of Jesus, and in the later developments, the letters and so forth, and the New Testament as well. We'll spend about three weeks on each of these touchstones. With, we'll break it up a bit with the Unity Sunday coming up in a few weeks, and we'll do something a little different there, but it will be related. Presence. We are sent into the world as agents of change and redemption. We are sent to be present in the world by a God who sends and a God who is present in the world already. It is God's nature to be present in the world. It was a part of His plan from the start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The waters are present right off the bat before, ever God, before God ever starts to speak in the six days of creation. There is at least a suggestion here that this account of creation begins not with creation out of nothing, but with creation from chaos, with bringing order to something that is disordered. The waters were there. The earth was there. It was formless. It was empty. It was dark. That is not to say that God didn't create all that there is or that God didn't create something out of nothing. He did. But we find that stated elsewhere in our Bibles, not here. According to scholar John Walton of Wheaton College, God is setting creation up as the temple in which He will dwell. God is setting up, ordering creation as the temple in which He will dwell. The picture of God resting on the seventh day in ancient Near Eastern uh, cultures was exactly what divine rest looked like. Temples were dedicated in seven days. God does not grow tired as if he needs a nap. I do every Sunday afternoon. God does not. God does not slumber or sleep. No, when God rests, it is to take his place on the throne in the temple of creation where he is now present with us. When God rests, in other words, God is present with us and God reigns over creation. When God rests, God is present with us and God reigns over creation. So we begin the study of this touchstone of presence with the recognition, first and foremost, that God is present, that God is with us. The Hebrew word for God with us is Emmanuel, which many of us will immediately recognize as the word, the name, the angel said to give Jesus at his birth. God with us, God with us in Jesus who will come to be with us like never before. But I get ahead of myself. In Romans 1, we are told that what may be known about God has been made plain to us in creation. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Furthermore, Paul says over in Ephesians 4, 6 that there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, in all things. God was present at creation And God is present in creation. And because God is present, we are called to be present too. Because God is present, we are called to be present too. We are sent into the world as agents of change and redemption. We can see this already playing out in the sixth day of creation when God creates humankind. First, God creates living creatures 
according to their kind in verse 24 of chapter 1. And then, and then in verse 26, God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In the ancient Near Eastern world, when kings and emperors took the throne or conquered new lands, they erected statues of themselves across the domain to communicate to their subject who was in charge and to whom they owed loyalty and thanksgiving. In Hebrew, the word for image is tselem. It comes from a word that can mean shadow, as in a shadowing forth of something. In the Greek translation of these verses, from which our New Testament often quotes, the word used to translate the Hebrew word is ikon. Icon. Or when we bring it more fully and intentionally into current day English, icon. Icon. And now we're getting somewhere. We all know what an icon is in our day and age. An icon is an image on our computer screens, our tablets, or our smartphones. The icon for the Bible app, for example, is not the Bible. But it represents the Bible. It represents the Bible app. If I tap on it, it will open the Bible app. If you don't have the Bible app, this is a great time to remind you, I encourage that you get the Bible app on your tablet or smartphone. There you go, Ben. Go get it. Go get it. Oh, you have it. Okay. (laughs) Download it wherever you get your apps, and when you do, you open it up, and somewhere on that home page is going to be those little lines that tell you, oh, tap here, there's more. Tap on that. It'll open up a list, and one of those things in that list is going to be events. Tap on that, and if you have your location services open, you will see ECC pop up. Every week, for a couple of years now, we, we have been putting resources, the passage and questions and uh, resources for uh, continued learning afterwards in the app, and I encourage you to get that. Just as the Bible app icon represents the app itself, so human beings represent the creator of the universe. We encounter the image of God in and through one another. We encounter the image of God in and through one another. In, and all that makes us truly human, friends, we can see and even experience the divine creator of all that is. We ought to be feeling pretty good about ourselves about right now. Likewise, in the ancient world, it was believed that only kings, only kings imaged forth the gods. Kings were divine, not everybody else. But when God creates human beings in His image, the role of imaging forth the divine into creation is given to all people, not just those who sit on thrones. We are all kings and queens who rule and reign on earth as God's viceroys, God's representatives. At least that's God's intention, that's God's vision, that's God's plan. That's where all things are headed. But in addition to this idea that, we, that God intended that human beings image forth His nature into creation, there's something else here. Three times in those three verses we just read, Genesis tells us, that humankind, made in God's image, is to rule over creation. So again, in verse uh, 26, uh, let us make mankind an image in our likeness so they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, and so forth. In verse 28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. 
Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. But what does this ruling, what does this subduing mean? From a broken perspective of sinful humanity, it can become quite twisted. We can and have used these verses to exploit God's good creation. I remember a few years ago while I was on vacation, as uh, Kim and I sometimes do when we're in town, we go to another church in Lafayette, and we did that. We went to a church in Lafayette. I'm not going to tell you which one, and you'll see why in a minute. And I don't remember what the sermon was about, but I do remember at some point the preacher was making a point that tied into the dominion that God has given us, the rule, the subduing part as humankind's made in the image of God. And as an illustration of the dominion that we have as human beings, and I'm going to tell you right now, some of you might be tempted to laugh when I tell this story. Don't, because I will offend you two sentences later if you laugh. I'm warning you, don't laugh. All your friends will look at you. You laughed. Don't laugh. And to illustrate this, he told the story of being in his living room one day and hearing this annoying cricket chirping. And he went on a search and find operation, turning over everything. And he finally found this cricket in between the cushions on his couch. And as an illustration of dominion, he picked up the cricket, looked at it in its face and said, I have dominion over you. And then he squashed it between his fingers. That is not at all what Genesis has in mind when it says we have dominion. To say nothing of God's good intentions. That is short-sighted and stupid, quite frankly. No, if we are placed here as human beings to rule over and to subdue, it is for the purpose of taming what is wild and bringing it to the place of being fruitful as God intended. The, the two Hebrew words used for rule and subdue reflect similar terminology in, found in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, Babylon and Egypt, where the language refers to the royal duties of rulers. Rulers were not to exploit or destroy They were to care for, to sustain, to work toward the fruitfulness, the flourishing of their subjects. Indeed, if we read to the end of this passage, we see that these human icons who ruled in God's stead were not even to eat the animals. Rather, God said, for both beasts and humans, the plants and their fruit would be our food. To subdue does not mean to squash, kill, or exploit. It means to make it prosper. It means to help it do what God has always intended it to do. It means to care for it, to cause it to be fruitful. A few weeks ago when I was just beginning to pray about this series this fall, I went down to the prayer room at the end of the hall here and just was praying and and I turned to Genesis 1 to read it in one of the Bibles that's down in that room and I stumbled across some introductory remarks that the publisher had put in. They said there that God created, quote, humankind to share the task of bringing God's wise and beneficial rule to the rest of the world. Male and female together are significant decision-making, world-shaping beings. This is our vocation, our purpose as defined in the biblical story. Now, I don't like it when preachers do to me what I'm about to do to you, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to ask you to repeat those words after me. I'm going to say them first, and then I want you to repeat them. And when you repeat them, I want you to say them with some attitude, with some energy, and like you really believe it's true. This is the most amazing thing you've ever heard. Let me say it first. You follow. We are significant decision-making, world-shaping beings. Go. We are significant decision-making, world-shaping beings. That wasn't so bad, was it? That's good news, but it also ought to terrify us. 
That's a daunting, potentially dangerous responsibility that we have to be significant decision-making, world-shaping beings. This is our vocation. This is our purpose as defined in the biblical story. From the very beginning, God intended to make His presence known through us, His image bearers. In Genesis 3, we read that God sometimes apparently longed to walk with the humans to fellowship with them, fellowship with them in, in the cool of the day. We also read there that the first man and woman disobeyed God. They took matters into their own hands and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after that, their sin damaged that relationship. It continues to do damage in the book of Genesis and in the world today. Sin spreads, as do the consequences and brokenness that result from sin. For we all, every single one of us, we all, right down to the present day, we all disobey God. We all fail to trust God. We all try and take matters into our own hands. And when we do, we rebel against God's intentions and God's plan. God is present with creation, and God has created humankind to represent God's ways and God's rule over all of creation. This was our calling from the very beginning. And then once we come to know Christ, the image that was tainted and scarred and diminished within us is is renewed or begins the process of being renewed. The image of God in Christ is reformed within us. We are predestined, Paul says in Romans 8, we are predestined to, to be conformed to the image of God's Son. We'll talk about that more in depth when we get to our second touchstone, transformation. And then if we skip ahead a few chapters in Genesis we discover that sin has continued to spread and do damage to humankind's relationship with God, with one another, and with creation. By chapter 11, human beings resist God's original mandate that we go into all the earth and multiply, increase in number, and reign in God's stead. Listen to how Genesis 11 begins. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. They resisted the movement throughout the whole earth that God had mandated for them in Genesis chapter 1. So what does God do? Verse 8. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. What God began in Genesis 1, and human beings resisted in Genesis 11, God relaunches. We skip down to uh, chapter 12 of Genesis. We see that God has not given up on us. God has a plan The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The God who created and set the universe in order and then came to dwell with us in His good creation. The God who created humankind as His viceroys, his agents of his reign on earth, now sends Abram, or Abraham, and promises to bless all peoples of the earth through his descendants. 
And of course, eventually, in the fullness of time, through Abraham's line, God will send His one and only Son, through whom God will indeed bless all families of the earth. The Word, the Son of God, will take on flesh and bone and blood and will become one of us and make His dwelling among us. But here's the thing we do not want to miss. Even with all of our mistakes and our sins and our outright rebellion, even with our missteps and misrepresentations of God's character, even with our failed and false attempts at religion, through it all, through history, God is still with us and we are still a part of God's plan. He just won't let us go. God is still with us and we are still a part of God's plan. You need to know that for yourself perhaps. God is still with you and you are still a part of God's plan. For Jesus God's one and only Son, Jesus, calls us to Himself, teaches us how to live, how to treat one another, gives His life for us, raises again on the third day, and sends His Holy Spirit so that you and I can bear witness to God's universal reign in Christ. So that you and I can be present to those around us and to God's creation, both being and bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. We are both to bring and be the good news of Jesus to the world. And so, on the back of, your, of the insert in your bulletin, you see that our mission statement has not changed. To know God, follow Jesus, and pursue God's purpose in the world. And then we give you some definitions of what that means. And then we have six community practices to help us accomplish that mission. We used to have five. Now we have six. The one we've added is witnessing. <coughs> witnessing, which we define as growing in our ability to share our faith in word and deed. Growing in our ability to share our faith in word and deed. Each of these touchstones are directly related to one another, which we'll show you as we move through the series. <coughs> Each of them by themselves are important on their own, but they're better together, they're much better. A few months ago, the ministry planning team asked the pastors <clears throat> and Megan Gobrogi, our director of worship and music, to come to the next meeting <coughs> with our vision and our passions. And for a few weeks before that time, I had been wrestling with a revamping of a few things and, and, and truly, truly sensed that God was speaking about three words. At the time, I thought of them as values. I shared these words with Pastor Kurt and Pastor Jordan, <coughs> and we talked about them. We wrestled over them. Over a few weeks, we agreed on the words we have now. Welcome, transformation, and presence. Apart from our conversations, Megan came to the meeting with two words to summarize her own vision for worship at ECC. Those words for her were warmth and transformation. Not that far from welcome and transformation. The overlap of these words meant something to us. The ministry planning team... And then the council considered these words, these touchstones, and they joined with us in bringing them to you. While each of the pastors believe in all of the touchstones, each of us has a particular passion for one as well. For Kurt, his passion is presence, and in particular what it means to share the good news of Jesus with our neighbors. Jordan's passion is welcome and what it means to be hospitable in our context. My passion is transformation, what it means to become Christiform people, people in whom Christ is formed, as the Apostle Paul puts it. 
As the ministry planning team and we have continued to sit with these touchstones, I sense them, I sense them becoming more and more important in the coming months. They will direct and inform and shape our mission in important ways. And if we let the Spirit of God do what He wants to do, I truly believe God will use these touchstones to bring about that monumental change of heart we so desperately need. The icon we've chosen to represent presence is one of a branch that bears fruit. My thanks to Kellen Myers, our communications coordinator, for developing these. To be present as a tree is to be rooted in a place, right? It's to be rooted and nourished. It is to to blossom in that place. It is to flourish. It is to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. It points us toward Jesus' teaching that He is the vine and we are the branches. And that if we abide, remain, and stay connected to Jesus, in and through us we shall bear much fruit, fruit that will last. To be present in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, and in the ministries through which ECC serves and reaches out to our community is to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. It is to bear the fruit of people coming to faith in Christ, and it is to bear the fruit of works of compassion, mercy, and justice. I titled this sermon after the song we sang earlier, So Will I. The very first time I heard and sang that song was a couple of years ago. Kim and I were away in Wichita, Friends University, at the Apprentice Gathering. When the student band leading worship started playing this song, I was captured immediately by the first few lines. God of creation, there at the start, before the beginning of time, with no point of reference, you spoke to the dark and fleshed out the wonder of light. And then the first chorus just blew me away. And as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. I googled it. According to Hubble, there are at least 100 billion galaxies in the known universe. In the vapor of your breath, the planets form. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. I was captured by this song because over the past four years, the, the cosmos, the nature and beauty and wonder of the universe simply mesmerizes me. I can't even step outside at night or even before I go to bed at night. I said, I'm going to go back and look at the stars for a minute. The first time I saw Jupiter and four of her moons through a telescope, I kid you not, it took my breath away. Nothing speaks to me of the wonder, the beauty, the power, the majesty of God's presence quite so tangibly as the size of our ever-expanding universe. For in it and in all of creation, God's invisible qualities, His divine nature and eternal power are clearly seen, Paul told us in Romans 1. God is present in His creation. And if God has chosen to be present, so will I. What does that look like? If the stars were made to worship, so will I. If creation sings your praises, so will I. If creation still obeys you, so will I. And then towards the end of the song, referring to the number of human beings on the planet, I can see your heart eight billion different ways. Every precious one, a child you died to save. If you gave your life to love them, so will I. To that we might add, if human beings were made to mirror forth your reign in creation, so will I. If Abram obeyed you when you sent him to a land he did not know, so will I. If those first disciples went into all the world to make disciples of all nations, so will I. 
if presence is one of our touchstones here at ECC, if it is indeed a fundamental or quintessential part or feature of who God wants us to be, what is to be our response? What next steps might God want you and I to take? There could be many, I suppose, but I want to start here. I had one in the early service, and then I was reminded of one that I really need to bring, so we have two. Simply put, can you take this insert with you? Don't recycle it. Don't put it wherever you put it when you want to forget it. Take it with you. Keep it with you. Reflect on it in the coming weeks. Pray through these things. Pray about presence. Ask God to show you what presence means in your life, where God has sent you, where God has placed you, where God calls you to bear fruit in the world. For if you have come to know God, if you desire to learn to follow Jesus and pursue God's purposes in the world, God wants to do amazing, fruitful, powerful, beautiful things in and through you and into the world. And you heard about the other one earlier this morning. The third one on the card of Next Steps. Community Service Day. On September 21st from 9.30 to 11.30 a.m., we're going to come together with our friends in the Miller neighborhood and clean up the neighborhood. That's a way to be present. Maybe you could start there. That is a low-risk, high-grace way to serve and be present. So friends, by the grace of God, may we all be agents of change and redemption wherever God sends us. May we all find the grace to be rooted where we are, nourished and whole where we are, and to bear the fruit of the kingdom of God wherever we are. In response to the goodness and grace of God and in obedience to our calling to be present because God is present. Would you pray with me?